In the 1970s, Michael Taylor was largely an ordinary figure in the town of Osset, Yorkshire. He, his wife Christine, and five children, along with their poodle, lived happy and peaceful lives. The house was always full of laughter. Friends and neighbors described Taylor as cheerful and good-natured. However, to the disappointment of the community, the Taylors were not particularly religious. This prompted friends and neighbors to invite Michael and his wife to a Christian fellowship group led by a lady named Marie Robinson. Contrary to what you might expect, Taylor developed a sudden and obsessive zeal for the group and, in particular, an infatuation with its charismatic leader, Marie. He spent an inordinate amount of time with her, even staying up all night to repeatedly perform the sign of the cross to ward off evil powers. It seemed clear that Taylor was under her spell. One day, Taylor's wife, Christine, confronted the mesmerizing Marie at the church group, accusing her of having an affair with her husband. After this confrontation, something changed in Taylor. Long gone was his cheerful and easygoing nature. Now, he was infuriated, venting anger at Marie. Marie would later state that his eyes changed to something bestial and that he began to speak in tongues. Taylor claimed that he had no memory of such an incident. Due to the terrifying and unnatural character displayed by Michael that night, the local vicar stated that the man was possessed by demonic forces. So, on the 5th of October, 1974, Michael Taylor was exorcised. As soon as the exorcism began, Taylor acted violently. He growled and snapped at all those around him. His behavior was so erratic that he needed to be physically restrained. Over the next eight hours, the crazed man would have crucifixes stuffed inside of his mouth while being doused with holy water. During those hours, 40 demons were supposedly exercised, with the exception of three. Insanity, anger, and murder. The priest... Exhausted by the ordeal, ordered the tailors to go home and prepare for the next round of exorcisms. The priest should have kept Michael in chains. Two hours later, Michael's hands were wrapped around Christine's throat. With those bare hands, he would gouge out her eyes, rip out her tongue, and disfigure her face beyond recognition. After his wife lay dead, Taylor went outside and killed the family dog, too. His neighbors would find him later, wandering the streets, naked and soaked in his wife's blood, shouting over and over again, It is the blood of Satan! And welcome to this week's Pinkie Pod. Pu-pu-pu-pow! Do I have your attention? I think I have your attention. Now, I just read that from the paranormal scholar. And it looks like these were written by Eric Roten. I want to give credit where it's due because that was, uh, that summary was done very well. And I'm going to read another one. And then I'll tell you what exactly the subject is here. So here's the second one. Shortly after 6 p.m. on 16th February 1981 in Connecticut, Debbie Glatzel watched on in confounded horror as her ordinarily even-tempered fiancé repeatedly plunged a five-inch pocket knife into her boss and landlord's chest. The victim would die an hour later in the hospital, 
sparking an historic murder case in American legal history. At his trial, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson pleaded not guilty to the murder charge. The defense was as follows. It was not Johnson who had murdered Alan Bono, but a demonic entity which inhabited his body. Have you guessed what the subject is this week yet? The story behind such an implausible defense involves the alleged possession of David Glatzel, the 11-year-old brother of Johnson's fiance, who was living with the couple prior to the murder. Strange happenings first began in the summer before the murder. David awoke in the night, sobbing in fear after being visited by a hideous creature, a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns and hooves. The beastly apparition had issued a warning. Beware. The visions amplified. David's beast was now haunting him during the daytime. Each time the child experienced a visitation, deep scratches would appear on the front door of the family's home. Red marks also began to appear on David's body. Everyone in the household believed the boy's claims. According to his sister, Debbie, it was out of character for him to lie. She related how he never liked anything spooky, not even scary comic books. Increasingly worried for David, a priest was summoned to bless the house, to no avail. The possession escalated to such heights that the family were taking shifts to monitor the boy during the night. Eventually, the involvement of paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren was sought. Now, these guys are pretty famous, by the way. You might have heard of them. Lorraine, who asserts that she has the gift of clairvoyancy, described encountering a black misty form during her first meeting with David. She immediately knew that they were dealing with something of a negative nature. Lorraine has stated that over the course of several visits, David made numerous references to murder and stabbings. In an attempt to save David from his unceasing tormentors, Johnson taunted the demons during the exorcisms to enter his body and leave the boy alone. Alas, the challenge was accepted. In the months leading up to the murder of Alan Bono, Johnson's fiance reported that he would go into a trance. He would growl and say he saw the beast. Later, he would have no memory of it. It was just like David. Johnson had changed. Six months later, Johnson brutally attacked his landlord, stabbing him in a frenzy as he growled like a beast. And there you go. <laughs> what do you think of that? The topic this week isn't simply demons, which I had mentioned in another podcast, and that's what prompted this. But I didn't want to do a podcast just on demon possession. I decided that I was going to look up research whether or not any murderers or serial killers or anybody had ever claimed that they were possessed as a defense. The thing is, I expected that I might have to go back really far in history when this was really big with the church to find stories like that. So, you know, I'm not usually too surprised and I'm not terribly, sh I'm not shocked, but the fact that I Googled, you know, 
possessed murderers and boom, I immediately got some very contemporary. I've actually skipped some. I, I chose what I think are the the most pertinent and, and chilling at the moment. Uh, I skimmed through some of the others and they seemed very, well, well more clearly insanity or schizophrenia, which I still kind of think it's probably a mental issue, but we'll see what we all think here as we get a little more in depth on a couple of these stories. So the first one I read to you was the Michael Taylor possession. And I'm now looking at realunexplainedmysteries.com. And as I said, it was 1974, a very unremarkable sort of area. You know, the Osset folk had no idea that soon the eyes of the world would be on their community. And this next bit is titled The Blood of Satan. At 9.45 a.m. on 6th October 1974, West Yorkshire police received the phone call. A man had been seen wandering naked through the streets, covered in red paint. Uncertain as to whether or not it was a hoax, P.C. Ian Walker was sent out to investigate. Making his way along the cold, deserted streets that Sunday morning, the police constable could have had little idea what the day would hold. Arriving at the scene, the officer discovered a naked man curled in the fetal position and covered not in red paint, but blood. As the officer approached him, the man began to scream, It is the blood of Satan! It is the blood of Satan! I'm trying not to annoy my neighbors so I didn't scream it the way I really would have liked to. I just want you to know that. Clearly in a state of great distress, you think? He was making little to no sense. By this time, a witness had arrived who identified him as Michael Taylor. Suspecting foul play may have taken place, Walker immediately radioed for officers to be dispatched to Taylor's home to check on his wife and children. What greeted the police at the home of Michael Taylor was a scene of appalling depravity. Mrs. Christine Taylor, the wife of Michael, and her small pet dog lay dead. Both had been murdered in the most shocking and gruesome way. They decided whoever had committed the crime was clearly deranged and evil. Mrs. Walker had asphyxiated on her own blood, but before she died, her attacker had ripped off her face, pulled out her tongue, and gouged out her eyes. Her little dog lay close by, and he had been strangled. His legs were torn out of their sockets, and his eyes and tongue were also removed. Oh, God, I get it. <sighs> Am I the only one who actually at times will get more upset by an animal just being treated like that than, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's okay what happened to his wife. But you just think about the poor little completely defenseless animal and you're, ah. I almost didn't read that to you. I hadn't read that part yet. I apologize. Trigger warning should have come before that. So the investigating officers immediately realized that Michael was the crazed killer, of course. Just one problem. Taylor could not remember his crime. He claimed to love his wife as he appeared to have no motive. For the time being, police and the public would have to wait to discover why this tragedy happened. 
In the meantime, Taylor was remanded to Broadmoor Hospital, a high-security psychiatric sorry, unit to await trial. That's one of those words that I always have trouble with. You must have some of those words, right? I have several, <laughs> several. If you've listened to me for a little bit, you know that. So the story unfolds. If the murder of Christine Taylor was shocking, the story was amazing. So sensational were the events leading up to the crime that it divided public and legal opinion and shook the Anglican Church of England to its very core. And I don't think of them as being very easily shooketh. Do you? Yeah. I always think of that Eddie Izzard, you know, they had, okay, never mind. Michael Taylor was an ordinary man man of 31, married to Christine. They They had five children, as mentioned before, ordinary life. At a time of high unemployment in Northern England, he wasn't helped by a long-standing back injury and spent periods of time looking for work. But this was far from unusual in an area where the main industries of coal and cotton weaving were on decline. Michael began to feel depressed and unsettled in the months preceding the murders. A friend, Barbara Wardman, invited him to attend a prayer group at the Christian Fellowship Church. He was not religious, but he agreed to go, as was mentioned. It was led by a young woman of 22, Mary Robinson. At some point, she began to shake and tremble, a sign that the Holy Spirit was within her. At these times, Mary believed she was able to offer healing to the suffering. Knowing that Michael had an injured back, was suffering from depression, she believed that God wanted her to heal him. When another member of the church, Mavis Smith, began to weep uncontrollably, Mary was torn who to help first. Eventually, she knelt before Mavis and began to speak in tongues in order to exercise the woman. I am sensing, okay, so this church leader was already speaking about exercising people? Hmm. To the astonishment of the congregation, Michael Taylor joined Mary, also speaking in tongues and praying fervently. Okay, I'm I'm realizing the other one said that her name was Marie, correct? Yeah, and this one says Mary. Dun, dun, dun. Let me click over here for just a second. Can we find quickly who he was really into? Nah, the Wikipedia just gives a... Oh, well. The Wikipedia doesn't... Okay, we'll just go back to it. Let's not interrupt the story. Over the next few weeks, Michael became obsessed with Mary or Marie. Is Marie a nickname for Mary? It could be, I don't know, which seems odd to me because it's the same... I think of nicknames as being shorter, but anyway. This is bugging me now. Oh, well. He became obsessed with her, much to the consternation, of course, of his wife. On the 1st of October, just a few days before the murder, Taylor and Robinson sat up all night, making the sign of the cross over each other. Is that a euphemism? You decide. The reason for this bizarre behavior was their concern that the full moon would somehow adversely affect Mary. Okay, was she a werewolf now? I'm sorry, this is just getting weirder, right? I mean, you know, I gotta make the jokes. 
As Michael's behavior became more uncharacteristic and disturbing, Christine reached a breaking point. Eventually, she publicly... Oh, it sounds like he was humiliated in public, not that he didn't deserve it. She confronted him in front of the congregation of the Christian Fellowship Church and accused him of having the affair. Mm. At this point, Michael began to display the violence that would lead to the tragedy before the end of the week. He was speaking in tongues and he attacked Mary Robinson in a blind rage. The members of the congregation intervened to drag Taylor away, leaving young Mary Robinson trembling and fearing for her life. Despite the display of uncontrolled rage, Michael returned to the church the next day and received absolution and forgiveness. It wasn't the end of the matter, obviously. Some thought that his behavior had gone too far. They thought the only explanation was demonic possession, which I know is always my th- first thought when anybody's acting weird, right? Totally. Oh, demon, 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 Satan, demon. Oh, cute demon, 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 demon. Well, the local vicar was particularly concerned, so he called for the exorcism. It was hastily organized. Two ministers, Father Peter Vincent. Hello, movie buffs. You've heard of Peter Vincent, haven't you? Oh, come on. Peter Vincent. All right. I'm not going to tell you. An Anglican priest and Reverend Raymond Smith, a Methodist minister. Interesting. So we had two, uh, two types here going at it. They did this at midnight. An- another nice little detail. 5th of October, 1974, St. Thames Church, Yorkshire. The exorcism began. Seven hours, he was put through unimaginable horrors. As soon as it began, he started to spit, scream, bite, and scratch. Eventually, he was tied to the church floor. I assume they had put stakes or something into the floor to tie him to? to prevent him from attacking the priest. Despite this, he continued to have convulsions. It was doused in holy water. Crucifixes placed upon his body. The other one said placed in his mouth. Much more dramatic, eh? Over 40 demons were identified as inhabiting his soul. So that's the same. These demons included the usual, incest, bestiality, heresy, lewdness, carnal knowledge, and blasphemy. According to the priest, they had to be dragged kicking and screaming from Michael Taylor's body. I'm confused here. Everything I've heard of, they usually have like these really weird names. These are just like, like sins, the seven deadly sins, right? I'm not super well versed in Catholicism and things like that, but don't they usually have actual names when it comes to exorcism or am I just seeing too many movies? You know, they're always asking, say your name. You can't get rid of it unless you say its name. Am I remembering the exorcist incorrectly? Anybody? Bueller? I mean, those are just like the seven deadly sins or something like that. Hmm. Okay. By daybreak, everybody involved was exhausted. Yeah, no shit. This exorcism had only been partially successful. But despite this failure... 
the decision was made to allow him to go home and they would complete the exorcism the following night. They didn't mention that before. Mm. Before he left the church, they warned Taylor that three demons still stubborn, stubbornly occupied his soul, and those were insanity, anger, and murder. Murder, how convenient. Within two hours, Michael Taylor had arrived home and slaughtered his wife and dog. <sighs> Shouldn't have, they should have kept him tied up, eh? Should have kept him? I hope they feel bad. So the trial... In 1975, the trial began with the warning that the details of the case would take the jury back to the Middle Ages. Sensationally reported in the national papers, the evidence would divide public opinion and turn many against the church. Taylor's defense rested on discrediting both the prayer group and the priests who attempted the exorcism. In defending his client, Mr. Ognel QC stated, let those who are truly responsible for this killing stand up. We submit that Taylor is a mere cipher. The real guilt lies elsewhere. Religion is the key. I got to interject again. I, I can't 100% disagree with that. Now, before you send me hate mail, I'm not saying that he's not responsible. He did what he did. At the same time, we know very well that people can be kind of brainwashed and, you know, given extra ideas. And uh, what I've already heard of this story, read of this story, don't you think there was a little bit of weirdness going on there? A little bit of brainwashing or, you know, for whatever reasons he was susceptible to it. But they were speaking in tongues and stuff. It's, it's like he already had this idea planted in his head, right? And they're the ones who said, you're possessed, there's nothing I've seen that suggests that he was afraid that he was possessed. He wasn't even religious before this. They're the ones that told him he had demons in him, and they named them murder, anger. I'm just saying. I think there's a little shared responsibility for the delusions. Yeah? We can agree on that, can't we? I hope so. But here you go. I guess I'm not the only one considering this. I would, it wouldn't, I should look up the court transcripts, you know, but eventually Michael Taylor was found not guilty of murder, but by reason of insanity, not demonic possession. It gets better. <laughs> he was then judged to be sane, and I believe I looked elsewhere, it was about four years later, and he was released back into society. Since then, he attempted suicide four times and in 2005 was brought before the courts again, accused of inappropriate conduct with a child. And I don't think I saw that on the other thing I looked up. Hmm. So they conclude here that the possession of Michael Taylor continues to divide public opinion. What role did the Christian Fellowship prayer group play in the death of Christine Taylor? Did this group, led by the charismatic Mary or Marie Robinson tip a depressed and vulnerable man over the edge of sanity? And as for the priests who carried out the exorcism of Michael Taylor, if they truly believed that he was possessed by demonic entities, should they have allowed him to walk out of St. Dame's Church on that fateful Sunday morning? You know what I think already. No! No! 
If you really thought that, wouldn't you have somebody sit with him? Seriously, I'm not even joking. No, you don't let him go. A witness to the exorcism, Margaret Smith, had begged the, there, here we go, a voice of reason, had begged the priest not to allow Taylor to leave the church until they, the job was complete. And her pleas fell on deaf ears. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to say it. Um, listen to women. <laughs> I said what I said. Listen to us. Now, some may argue that the fact that Taylor left a psychiatric unit four years after the murders, a sane man would indicate he was never possessed. And I'm going to kind of agree with them, although I don't necessarily think it has anything to do with how long he was in the uh, asylum. Others would argue that his suicide attempts are the sign of a deeply troubled soul. I'm not state the obvious. Both sides appear to agree that Michael was driven to commit this act by outside forces, whether it was demonic possession or the hysterical neurosis of a church. We may never know. Whatever the truth of the matter, an innocent woman was brutally killed, a family was torn apart, and a small town is scarred forever. Wow, what a story, right? What a story. Now, I go to the Wikipedia and they call her Marie. I didn't. For, I looked a second ago, but I guess I looked right past it. So in the Wikipedia, they name her Marie. So I guess pick your favorite, Mary, Marie. One of them, I wondered if it's just, oh, you know, it could have happened. Maybe somebody just heard Mary, Marie, or it was said in an accent. It's, I think some of this is from Britain. And... Um, it ended up being Mary instead of Marie. I don't know. I'm trying to give a reason, okay? Maybe I'm stretching there. <laughs> now, the other one. This one is also very interesting. And I think that we'll just go... Let's go to a page called allthatsinteresting.com. Allthat'sInteresting.com. Let me get to the top here. And this is the twisted murder trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. And that's A-R-N-E. I think that's how you say his name. Who claimed to be possessed by demons. This is a nice recent article by Marco Margaritoff. Please forgive me, Marco, on the rare chance that you might be listening to this if I butchered your name. And this was actually written just in August 26, 2020. How about that? On February 16, 1981, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson fatally stabbed his landlord, Alan Bono. And then he said the devil made him do it. At first, the 1981 murder of Alan Bono appeared to be an open and shut case in Brookfield, Connecticut. To the police, it was clear that the 40-year-old landlord had been killed by his tenant, Arne Cheyenne Johnson, during a violent argument. After his arrest, he made the incredible claim. The devil made him do it. Aided by two paranormal investigators, who we mentioned, the Warrens, the he was 19, the 19-year-old's attorneys presented their client's claim of demonic possession as a potential defense for his murder of Bono. They got some pictures here too, by the way, of the L Lorraines as well. The courts have dealt with the existence of God, said Johnson's attorney, Martin Manella. 
Now they're going to have to deal with the existence of the devil. I'm going to interject here. Even though I don't necessarily believe in this stuff, if you do believe in God, then yes, you kind of have to believe in the devil, don't you? I mean, it goes with it, right? Okay, you don't have to, but it makes sense that you would. So, now what's interesting about this case, though, it was the first time in history that a defense like this was used in an American courtroom. Now, the other guy, that was in Britain, and this is uh, 1981, did I say? So the first time they ever heard this defense in an American courtroom. And nearly 40 years later, Johnson's case is still shrouded in controversy and unsettling speculation. Now this is where it gets... Ooh, are you ready for it? Are you ready? Because I just found this out today. You know the Conjuring films? You've seen at least one of them, right? Maybe, maybe. This case is the inspiration for the soon-to-be-released film... The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And apparently it comes out sometime this year. <laughs> so on February 16, 19... And oh, yes, and by the way, it stars all the same people as the Warrens, etc., etc. Good, yeah, right on. So what happened to Arnie Cheyenne Johnson? All right, on February 16, 1981, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson stabbed his landlord, Alan Bono, to death with a five-inch pocket knife, committing the first murder ever recorded in the 193-year history of Brookfield. Wow. Safest town in America till then, huh? Before the murder, Johnson was, by all accounts, a regular teenager. No record. The strange occurrences that ended in the murder allegedly began months earlier. In the courtroom defense, he claimed that the source of all this suffering started with the 11-year-old brother of his fiancée, Debbie Glatzel. And that was David, right? Yes. In the summer of 1980, Debbie's brother David claimed that he'd repeatedly encountered an old man who would taunt him. Oh, good. We're getting more details here. At first, Johnson and Glatzel thought David was just trying to get out of doing chores. And they dismissed the story entirely. Nonetheless, wait, didn't somebody say he was never known to lie? See, you read more than one story and there it goes. Okay. Nonetheless, the encounters continued, growing both more frequent and more violent. David would wake up crying. Oh, never mind. They weren't talking just about the first time. Blah, blah, blah. Don't mind me. I'm correcting myself in my head. David would wake up crying hysterically, describing visions of a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hoofs. So that checks out. Before long... The family asked a priest from a church nearby to bless their home to no avail. So that's when they hoped the paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren, could lend a hand. There's video on this page, too, of Lorraine Warren is what I see on the opening. Groovy. You should visit this page, allthatsinteresting.com, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. So they said David would kick, bite, spit, swear, terrible words. He experienced strangling attempts by invisible hands. Now, we heard this before in one of my other podcasts, didn't we? For poltergeists. For poltergeists. So these invisible hands he tried to pull from his neck 
and powerful forces would flop him rapidly head to toe like a rag doll. Again, very similar to the poltergeists. One, of, one story in particular that I told you on another podcast. Johnson stayed with the family to help however he could. But disturbingly, the child's nightly terrors began to seep into the daytime as well. David described seeing an old man with a white beard dressed in a flannel shirt and jeans. Sounds very uh, Seattle's grunge. I'm in Seattle. Yeah, just totally pictured it. As the child's visions continued, suspicious noises began emanating from the attic. Meanwhile, David started hissing, having seizures, and speaking in strange voices, quoting John Milton's Paradise Lost and the Bible. After reviewing the case, the Warrens concluded that this was clearly demonic possession, as you do. However, psychiatrists who investigated the case after the fact claimed that he had a learning disability. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Wait, 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 wait. What learning disability makes you do shit like that? Who is this? I don't see the psychiatrist's name. I feel like we need to find out who that idiot is. And no, I won't take that back. What a, what an idiot. <laughs> that's, that's nicer than what I want to say. What learning disability makes you act like that? That's horrible. Don't you think that's horrible? I mean, even if you were, I don't know, even if you're on the spectrum, I don't, I don't think that you generally act like that. I mean, I've, I've had clients who are, you know, autistic and yeah, oh, really? A learning disability? I want to know. It doesn't say exactly what fucking learning disability, and it's merely has a learning disability. What the, f- what the, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> that really bugs me. Can you tell? Anyway. The Warrens claimed that over the course of three subsequent exorcisms overseen by priests, David levitated, cursed, and even stopped breathing. What learning disability be- Yeah, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll leave off it. I'll stop, I'll stop. Maybe. Maybe. Perhaps even more astonishingly, David allegedly predicted the murder that Arnie Cheyenne Johnson would eventually commit. Dun, dun, dun. By October 1980, Johnson started taunting the demonic presence, telling it to stop bothering his fiancé's brother. Take me on, leave my little buddy alone, he cried. So, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, the killer? Hmm. As a source of income, Johnson worked for a tree surgeon. Meanwhile, Bono managed a kennel. That's the guy who was murdered. The two were purportedly friendly, often met up near the kennel, with Johnson sometimes even calling in sick to work, calling in sick to work in order to do so. But on February 16, 1981, a vicious argument broke out between them. Around 6.30 p.m., Johnson suddenly drew out a pocket knife and aimed it at Bono. Bono was stabbed multiple times in the chest and stomach. God, that must have been vicious because pocket knives are usually pretty short. You know, I've got a couple myself. I've got some probably antique, you know, that were my grandfather and my father's pearl handled and everything. They're pretty cool, by the way. But 
they're not usually that big. How many times do you have to... It sounds to me like that would be really violent, don't you think? A pocket knife. Several times in the chest and stomach. And then he was left to bleed to death. Makes me wonder if they could have saved him, you know, if they could have got him to a hospital and uh, gave him some blood. Unless he nicked some major arteries, but... Police arrested Johnson an hour later, so it was shortly after, relatively shortly after. And they said that the two men had been fighting over Johnson's fiancée, Debbie. The Warrens, of course, insisted there was more to the story. At some point prior to the murder, Johnson had allegedly also investigated a well in the same area where his fiancé's brother claimed to experience his first encounter with the malicious presence wreaking havoc on their lives. And pardon me while I click that link. Because wells, I mean, I remember that in the Amityville Horror. Uh, mm, it's not taking me straight to anything about the well, so we'll just not so apparently going to a well and I've also heard of wells supposedly in a couple of other well I'm not going to name the show but needless to say I think it's bullshit the Warrens had warned Johnson not to go near that same well but he did it anyway of course. It's just like a good horror film. Well, you're going to do it anyway, otherwise the movie is over, right? Uh, maybe he wanted to see if the demons would re- truly take over his body. But, dude, why? Why? There's no... You don't need to see. Let's, let's not check it out. Let's not find out, okay? He later claimed that he did see a demon hiding within the well who possessed him until after the murder. <clears throat> That's convenient. I was possessed, and then I did the murder, and I was totally cool. Everything was fine. What does that sound like to you guys? That sounds like, uh, God, I've watched so much true crime stories, you would think I would know the proper term for this, but, you know, they'll call it like a crime of passion, and I, I don't know if that was exactly what you would call this, but, you know, people can get all worked up in a moment, you know, and you kind of lose control of yourself for a minute, the frenzy, you know? That's what that sounds like. I was possessed and then I killed him and I felt better. I think, you know what I'm talking about. You just get worked up, right? I guess it's a crime of passion is kind of the thing I'm thinking of. They just get so, you know, over the edge. And then afterwards it's like, oh, oh, shit. (laughs) Well, some people maybe not. Some people don't feel bad, but that's different. So the authorities actually did investigate the Warrens' claims of a haunting. But they stuck with the story, <laughs> no surprise there, that Bono was killed during an altercation with Johnson over his fiance. But now let's get to the trial. His attorney, I mentioned Martin Manella, tried his best, did his job, you know, to enter the plea of not guilty by reason of demonic possession. Uh, I'm going to interject again. He probably would have been better off just to say, temporary insanity I kind of think that would have had a better shot right I mean if I was the attorney 
which at one time in my life I considered doing for like a minute. My dad said I would be good at it because I always like to have the last word. <laughs> like, no, really, that's a true story. So he tried to enter this, uh, yeah, I'm just, I would have done temporary insanity. Or insanity, whatever, but not guilty by reason of demonic possession. I want to know the look on the judge's faces. Uh, um, and by the way, my laughter here has no bearing on the poor dead person. I'm just... The lawyer, he needed a new lawyer. Now, he did plan to subpoena the priest, though, who allegedly attended the exorcism, urging them to break tradition by speaking about their rights, which apparently they never do. Which also makes it pretty difficult to decide whether or not any, you, know, you believe in possession, because if they won't ever speak about it, then how are you supposed to... I guess they don't care if you believe them. I don't know. Over the course of the trial, Manila and the Warrens were routinely mocked by their peers, not surprising, who saw them as profiteers of tragedy. They have an excellent vaudeville act, a good road show, said mentalist George Kresich. It's just that this case more involves clinical psychologists than it does them. Judge Robert Callahan ultimately rejected Manila's plea, not surprised. Judge Callahan argued such a defense would be impossible to prove, mm -hmm, and that any testimony on the matter was unscientific and thus irrelevant. Yeah, see, I predicted that just a couple of paragraphs ago. Like, insanity, which is hard enough to, uh, not the easy thing to prove that the TV shows would have you believe, by the way. The collaboration of four priests during the three exorcisms was never confirmed, but the Diocese of Bridgeport acknowledged that priests worked on helping David Glatzel during a difficult time. See, they're so secretive. Oh, those drama queens, they won't tell anybody anything. I want to know your secrets. The priests in question, meanwhile, were ordered not to speak on the matter publicly. No one from the church has said one way or the other what was involved, said Reverend Nicholas V. Grisio. Grico, pardon me, Grico, a diocese spokesman. And we declined to say. Hmm, fine, keep your little secrets. Johnson's lawyers were permitted to examine Bono's clothing, however. Huh, wait, really? Okay, Bono was the murder victim, okay? The lack of any blood, rips, or tears, they argued, could help support the claim of demonic involvement. Are we sure that was Bono's clothing or Johnson's? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, are, is that right? The dead guy being stabbed a bazillion times, possibly? That's got to be, that's got to be incorrect, Of course, no one in the, in the court was convinced, by the way. Pardon me, I'm just sort of stunned here for a second. Is that correct? No blood rips or tears? That's got to be... That's got to be uh, Johnson's clothing. Right? No way. This has got to be backwards. 
I, oh, I, I are confused. I guess I'm going to have to watch the movie when it comes out. So then Johnson's legal team opted for a self-defense plea. Oh, they changed mid-course. He was convicted of first-degree manslaughter on November 24, 1981, sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. He only served five. (laughs) Wow. So this inspired The Conjuring. The devil made me do it. As he languished behind bars for a pitiful little five years, Gerald Brittle's book about the incident, The Devil in Connecticut. Oh, you guys, I've heard of that, haven't you? I think I've heard of that. And it was published with help from Lorraine Warren. On top of that, the trial inspired the production of a television movie called The Demon Murdered Case. I think I also saw somewhere that once upon a time this was on The Haunting, but they changed a few details. David Glatzel's brother Carl was not amused. He ended up suing Brittle and Warren for the book. That's why I've heard of it. That's why I've heard of it. Oh, the serendipity continues. These things will come up. Yes, they, they, he sued for it, alleging that it violated his right to privacy. He also said that it was an intentional affliction of emotional distress. Further, he claimed the narrative was a hoax created by the Warrens who took advantage of his brother's mental health for money. Oh my goodness, there's actually an official trailer here for The Devil Made Me Do It, September 2020. There you go, in theaters. So after serving about five years in prison, Johnson was released in 1986. He married his fiancée while he was still behind bars. As of 2014, they were still together. Doesn't say anything after that. So she, she stuck by him. At least until 2014, that's where, the, where this stops. As for Debbie, she maintains an interest in the supernatural, claims that Arnie's biggest mistake was challenging the beast. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, but that was pretty stupid. You never take that step, she said. You never challenge the devil. Arnie showed, started showing the same signs my brother did when he was under possession. So... There you go. Here's a little, apparently, author's note. After learning about the trial of Arne Cheyenne Johnson that inspired The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, read about Roland Doe and the true story behind The Exorcist. Then learn the true story of Annalise Michelle, the woman behind The Exorcist. Oh, yeah, I know about The Exorcism of Emily Rose, too. I've seen a couple movies. And... um I actually think I've probably read about The Exorcist before, but I've forgotten it. I don't know. Should that be another pod? I don't know. So, I mean, that was interesting. I feel like there's a couple of possibly off details there. On the Wikipedia, they talk about Discovery Channel's A Haunting and how Arnie Johnson and Debbie Glatzel actually provided first-hand accounts. Well, now I want to look up that episode, don't you? It doesn't... I don't see the date for that episode. It's, uh, yeah. 
They asserted that the paranormal activity began after they went to clean up a rental property they had just acquired. And they support the Warrens' recollection of events. Now, nobody mentioned a rental property. He does t- uh, the child, of course, it started with David and then jumped to Arnie. Um, it does mention the old man. Oh, that's what the cleaning that he didn't want to do. Okay. An excuse to avoid cleaning. Yep, so far I'm skimming this and it seems to be the same. Supposedly, uh, one of the Catholic priests who tried to bless the house didn't work. Family concluded the house was evil and would not rent it. So far, this is all checking out. Now, this is where the haunting gets a little different. And they say that a few days after Arnie Johnson egged the demon on during the exorcism, he was attacked by the demon who took control of his car and forced it into a tree. But Johnson was unharmed. And then he went to the old well. Johnson says that that was his final encounter with the demon while he was lucid. And after encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact, he became possessed. Hmm. Now they talk about the murder. Looks like there's just a little bit more detail here. Johnson had called in sick. And joined Debbie at the kennel, where she also worked, along with his sister Wanda and their nine-year-old cousin Mary. Bono, the landlord and Debbie's employer, had bought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. Oh, now we get some more details. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. Debbie took the girls to get pizza, but insisted they return quickly, anticipating trouble. Huh, so, so apparently she had, she was worried about something. I wonder why. It does not say. When they returned, Bono, intoxicated, became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging, except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let go. Johnson headed back to the apartment, ordered Bono to release Mary, and Wanda recounted the following events to the police. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Oh, you in danger, girl. It's a good thing I already know how this ends. Wanda tried in vain to pull Johnson away. Johnson, growling like an animal, drew a five-inch. So a little bit, yeah, that's a little bit longer than I thought, unless if that's only the blade. That's a very long pocket knife, isn't it? I guess it, well, I think it's a little bit more than a pocket knife. But he drew it and stabbed Bono repeatedly, and Bono died like, yes. Now, this says, according to Johnson's lawyer anyway, that there were four or five tremendous wounds. Maybe they just mean that those were the mortal wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Johnson was discovered two miles from the site. He, had been, he was held on bail of $125,000. Now, let's talk a little, they have a little bit more about the media reaction. The day after the murder, Warren, Lorraine Warren, 
informed the police that Johnson was possessed. The media blitz soon surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, whose agents promised that lectures, a book, and even a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. I think the Wikipedia is jumping ahead just a little here. I doubt very much that happened the same day or the day after, but we already know the movie and the book, you know, the movie's coming out and the book's been out. Uh, The lawyer, Martin Manella, received calls from all over the world about what was being called the demon murder trial. He even traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though they never went to trial. Damn, there's no link to those here. He had planned to fly an exorcism specialist from Europe. Well, yeah, that is, I think, kind of the home of the original exorcism, so that wasn't a bad idea. He threatened to subpoena the priests who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcisms, but we know how that turned out. The trial had started. Why is all of this always in October? Interesting. Because the trial began on October 28th. How many times have we mentioned, you know, 5th October 28th in different cases? Hmm. I guess they never did even use the uh, uh, not guilty by possession at all in court because the judge just immediately rejected it. So that's why they tried to imply (laughs) self-defense. Because of this, the jury was then not allowed to consider demonic possession. Wow, it just screwed all over the place, right? The jury actually deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting him on November 24th, 1981. Yeah, so again, they mentioned, if I di- or if I didn't mention it already, there was the television film titled The Demon Murder Case on NBC. The movie was apparently going to come out sooner, but there were internal conflicts. And I'm guessing that had something to do with that book that was mentioned, The Devil in Connecticut. Now, she said that the prophets, Lorraine Warren, said that the profits of the book were shared with the family. And sources confirmed that 2000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. It was republicated, reprinted, in 2006 by iUniverse. But then David Glatzel and his brother, oh, David was in on it, uh, the uh, lawsuit, it says here. David Glatzel and his brother Carl Glatzer sued for violating their right to privacy and for libel. Hmm. And the intentional affliction of emotional distress. Carl says that the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family. He said the possession story was a hoax. We knew that. And that the book presented him as a villain. Carl, that is. Because Carl did not believe in supernatural claims. He asserts that the Warrens told the story, told him the story would make the family millionaires and would keep Johnson out of jail. According to Carl, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school, lose friends, and business opportunities. So in 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the events. Lorraine Warren defended her work, saying that the six priests who were involved in the incident, was it six before? I don't think it was six before. (laughs) 
that these priests agreed that the boy was possessed. Now, Brittle, who is the author, author of The Devil in Connecticut, says he wrote the book because the family wanted the story told and that he has over 100 hours of his interviews with the family and that they signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. Oh, now here we are again. The drama that surrounds some of these things that I choose as subjects sometimes is way more interesting than, well, okay, all of this is a true story, but, you know, is worse than the demon or the ghosts or the, you know, the drama. He said, she said, she said, he said, no, you did, no, you did, and oh, oh. It just sounds like more grifting, doesn't it? I, I don't know. I don't know who's telling the truth. I don't know at all. I've heard of the Warrens, and they've been portrayed in many films. And I've always been kind of on the fence about them, though, for the record. I've never been 100% convinced. Hmm. But Carl Glatzel Sr. denies telling the author that his son was possessed. And the happily married couple, if you remember, uh, Arnie and Debbie, support the Warrens' account. <laughs> they say that the Glatzels in question are suing just to get money. Everybody wants money, supposedly. Ooh, drama. I don't know if you followed all of that and can make any sense of it, but... I I wonder who's telling the truth. Woof. Now, I had intended after this to kind of um, talk a little bit about demonic possession itself. I am actually almost at an hour, my longest episode yet. Um, perhaps this should... Oh, you're going to hate me. Or maybe you won't. Maybe you're tired of the subject. Maybe I should have a part two. Because I was just going to kind of give a, a quick summary of different beliefs in demonic possession. There's probably a lot of people who think it's only Christianity. I probably, well, no, it depends on the type of possession. I was about to say, I probably thought that. But actually, it depends on what you decide to call the demons. Uh, so on the other hand, I mean, I have some idea that there's other religions uh, just glancing at the Wikipedia, they mention, of course, all of the monotheistic religions. But they also mention Buddhism, uh, Catholicism. I'm sure a lot of people think of that as a big one because they have the exorcisms. Islam follow, you know, goes under monotheism. And there's, yeah, it's a, it is a lot of Christianity, though. It is. But right here, there are notable cases of claimed demonic possession and some of these look kind of interesting. I could just click every one of these links. Ha! And I'm laughing now because, uh, see also, body hopping. Body hopping. I'm just going to hop in and out. Hop, 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 hop. Hopping now like a bunny. A demonic bunny. Donnie Darko. Oof. Never miss a shot at a movie reference if I can help it. And you know what? We'll just stop this crazy episode right here because I don't have time to. I, you know what? This is going to have to be a part two.
I think this may have to be part two because now I'm curious. And if I'm curious, you're just going to have to listen to it. Okay, then. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you'll tune in for part two. And if you like anything I've done so far, I do hope you'll visit my Patreon, patreon.com slash press. You will see different pledges you can make there. Once you've already gone through it, you can change the amount anytime if you don't like the amount that it says there. You can quit anytime. Okay, you can quit anytime. But if you would like to help support me and I can get better equipment or heck, just pay my bills in this horrible time of COVID, I would be so deeply grateful. And there'll be a nice little community there. You know, we have a, a private place to talk, no judgment, and bonus content. Contains possibly a, a lot of my beautiful cat, Kisu. If you like kitty cats, if you don't like kitty cats, what are you doing here? <laughs> also visit me on my official channels, if you will, Pod Pinky on Twitter, Pinky underscore pod underscore cast at Instagram. I always have to think about that one because I had to change it up a little bit and all the underscores. Sorry, I'm going brain dead. Uh, official site, pinkyswearpress.com. I have merchandise, merchandise, specific to the podcast at TeePublic, Pinky Square Press Store. I also, by the way, have some other stuff that I've designed. If you're interested, just ask me. I hope that you will like, comment, share. Word of mouth helps me the most. I'm just trying to have fun. And it's always nice, you know, if other people discover it and they say, hey, that was kind of cool. I really enjoyed, you know, such and such episode. I, so I will love you forever if you just even tell your friends, hey, this is kind of cool. Would you listen to it? I would deeply appreciate it. And I think that's all the business. You can listen to me on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Player FM. You can find me on Listen Now, TuneIn, and Google Podcasts. And I have a, a submission into another one, but I haven't heard back yet. But for now, that is the end of part one. To be continued. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Pinkie Pod. Pup 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 pow.